Well, hey guys, this morning we come to the end of our series, The New Normal. Now, often people, when you talk about change, uh, they're not really excited about it because new anything is kind of uncomfortable a lot of times. But sometimes, just sometimes, it's a good thing. In fact, sometimes it's a needed thing. There was a boatload of things that people had been taught were true in Jesus' day, and many of them were true as far as they went. But he was saying what you need to know is that there is a new normal that goes way beyond the old normal that you have come to understand. And there's a new normal that you're going to have to not only understand, but embrace if you're really going to be my followers New normal concerning things like anger and relationships and, and, and truth-telling and retaliation and how to treat enemies and what true spirituality really looked like. As Jesus sums up his teaching now, he talks about something that, as a carpenter, he knew quite a bit about, the importance of foundations when building a house. He said that a guy who hears my words concerning the new normal and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. But one who hears my words and decides to disregard my teaching is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Now, as he paints a mental picture for them in their minds, uh, he wants to get this point across. We, we think in pictures, whether you know that or not. And so Jesus wanted to paint this picture of them to get his point across. And there are a few things that the listener would have assumed about the two houses that Jesus was about to talk about. The first thing they would have assumed was that the guys building the houses intended to build permanent housing. They weren't just putting up a tool shed. The listener would assume that both the builders... Uh, would be constructing a, a permanent dwelling to raise their families in. And hopefully, you know, one day when they were no longer around, they'd pass it on to their children's, and who knows, maybe their children's children's. That's first. The second thing the listener would assume is that they were probably identical houses. That is, if, you're, if you looked at the two houses, you know, you just went to the front and kind of looked at them, they probably looked exactly the same. There wasn't much difference between them. For all we know, they may have been constructed from the very same set of blueprints. One may have had a little bit better view of the sunset from their lot, the other one a better view of the ocean, but to the casual observer, the houses looked the same. But they weren't. They weren't the same at all. Because although the difference wasn't obvious, it was fundamental. The difference was in the foundation upon which they were built. Now, any builder worth his salt knows that the most important part of any building is the foundation. Foundations are really, really important when you're building a house. Very, very important. The strength, the stability, the endurance of the house is completely dependent on the foundation. Now, most people would think that anyone who would even consider building a house on sand would have to be the dumbest person in the neighborhood. And for the most part, when you think that, you, you may be right. But you need to know that the sand near the area that Jesus was talking about got very, very hard in that area. Very hard. In fact, uh, sometimes when you walked on it, it felt like you were literally walking on rock. 
And when you take into consideration the better view of the ocean from the sand side and the closer proximity to the main road and the town and how you could see the sun setting, just picture the sun setting in the western sky. You're sitting on your front porch and a little rocking chair in the evening, and there is, and there's the ocean. You can kind of get the understanding maybe that someone just might be tempted to build their house on that hard sand. Besides all that, Building on sand takes a lot less digging, so a lot less time, and so a lot less expense than the guy building on the rock. And as I said, from the outside, you could never tell the difference between the two houses, at least not initially. But there is a huge difference between sand and rock. They're good for different things. Sand is great when you're sunbathing. You know, you're laying, you sit in the sand at the beach, you kind of get your mold in there, and you start, sand is great for that. It's great for making sand castles. And, and, and where else really would you play beach volleyball? On the other hand, rock would not be your best choice for those very same things. I imagine it would be quite painful to play beach volleyball on rock. I'm also not so sure how comfortable it would be if you're laying on a rock to get a tan. But rock is great for at least one thing that I can think of. It's great for building on. Sand? Not so much. That's because when the storms hit, like they would hit in that region in the winter, swelling the Jordan River, which resulted in flooding. See, sand tends to shift. It becomes unstable. It's at the mercy of surrounding forces. When wind and rain and flooding comes, sand moves, it shifts, and so what, whatever is on it is going to move and shift also. You know, one of the theories being considered about the tragic collapse of the condo complex in Miami last week is that the building had been slowly, almost imperceptibly, shifting for years until finally the supporting pillars underneath in the basement collapsed. But as I said to the casual observer, these two houses, they looked exactly alike. The only thing that would ever reveal the difference between the two houses would be the winter storms when they came. But as you know, Jesus was not talking about building houses. He was talking about building a life. And he was saying three things about building a life. Number one, he was saying that of all of us, uh, or all of us, are building a foundation for our lives, something upon which we are building. All of us have something upon which the house we call our life is built upon. In the quiet moments, what do you dream of? What do you think about? Where, where does your mind go? For some, it goes to possessions, others, passions, still others, position. For all of us, there is something which fuels our actions, our energy, and our attitudes. What is it for you? All of us, every one of us, have a foundation for our lives. Second thing Jesus was saying, he was saying that the foundation of our lives will be tested. 
both the Christian and the atheist will be exposed to storms. Christians don't get a free pass when it comes to suffering and trials. The benefit of being a Christian, as some would have you think, is not protection from hurricanes. Besides, sunshine living doesn't tell us very much about a house, or for that matter, a life. Never has. Only storms do that. Sometimes those storms come by way of great temptations or great and crushing personal loss. Sometimes the storms come by way of sickness or death or a broken relationship. Storms and the suffering they bring come in many varieties, in many forms. Even, listen, even prosperity can end up being a storm in one's life. Yes, prosperity tests your foundation too. There are many things that test the foundations of our lives. We are all builders, Jesus says. We're all building a life. All of us are building on some sort of foundation. And all our buildings will be tested. Not by sunshine, but by storms. Third thing Jesus was saying. He was saying that some houses will stand and others will fall. In fact, it seems that there will be many more houses that will fall than will stand in the end. Jesus never soft-pedaled the truth. Because of his great love for people, he never lied to them. And so he warned them. He told them that those who hear his words and then put them into practice are like wise builders. If you look at the foundation upon which a structure is built, you'll be able to tell whether or not that structure will endure or will one day collapse. That principle applies to individual lives. And, as I was thinking on this July 4th, it applies to a nation too. In the countryside near Leicester, England, there stands an ancient church whose walls are inscribed with an eloquent memorial. The inscription recalls the life of a man, a baronet. A baronet was a hereditary title awarded by the British crown. But it has the words of, from this, uh, of concerning this baronet whose, whose sacrifice literally built that church. And it reads as follows. In the year 1653, when all things sacred were throughout ye nation, either demolished or profaned, Sir Robert Shirley, baronet, did found this church, whose singular praise it is to have done the best of things in the worst of times and hope them in the most calamitous. To have done the best of things in the worst of times and hope them in the most calamitous. Calamitous. Haven't used that word recently. It's from an old French word. It means devastating, disastrous, fatal. Now, I don't know about you, but it strikes me that we may be living in calamitous times. One thing that I have observed, and that is that calamitous times rarely thrust themselves upon us in a single instant. You know the story of the frog in the water, right? If you ever threw a frog into a pot of hot water, it would immediately boom, hop right out, right? Hop immediately. But if you threw it into a pot of lukewarm water and slowly, slowly turned the heat up, pretty soon it would drift off to sleep. And pretty soon after that, it would be on someone's fancy dinner table. 
The business, political, and even religious institutions and churches of our day have been profaned by greed and by arrogance and pride, I think, from all sides. More than ever, you know, everybody says, well, more than ever, this is the worst time to... I don't know if it's more than ever. More than ever in my lifetime, I would say yes, probably. It seems uh, over over time, the foundations have started to give way in a way that I have never personally observed before. One indication of that may be in the results of a January poll. You know, historically, young people are always more optimistic about their chances to have a better life than their parents. But in this poll, it appears that they no longer feel that way. The optimistic numbers usually associated with this group, now comprising of millennials and Gen X responders, they've come down. They've come down a lot. Well, you say, well, it's COVID. Uh, Everybody's worn out. Everyone's going out of their minds. You know, this, that, and the other thing. Okay, that may be part of the shift in the numbers downward. But there are many more factors involved, according to that study. If it isn't quite the worst of times, it sometimes seems to be heading that way. So in the midst of all of that, what does it look like to be a people who do the, pe- the best of things in the worst of times, or at least in a time such as the one we're living in right now? Where do we need to look? What do we need to do? How can we repair what has been broken? Jeremiah the prophet addressed the weary nation and told them that there was only one hope for the times in which they lived. It was in choosing to address the fractured foundation of their nation. He said that it was in deciding to stop making bad decisions and start making good ones, literally in deciding to get back on a good path from which they've strayed. You know, the story goes that one time, uh, Yogi Barry, the great Yankee catcher, was giving a friend directions to his house in Montclair. He used to live right down the block. And, and, and he said to him, When you come to the fork in the road, take it, a yogiism. The prophet Jeremiah talked about uh, forks and roads too, although he gave a bit more direction than dear yogi did. In Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16, he said this. He said, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is. And walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. His words were directed both to a beat-up, fractured individual and individuals, but also to a broken nation. And the formula for such a historical turnaround for the nation and the individual, he indicated, wouldn't require a lot of money or a super intellect or a massive taxpayer-funded government program. It would only require just two things on the part of the citizens of that nation to do. They needed to shore up the foundations by one, remembering the ancient paths, and then two, walking in them. He said that to go forward, they would have to go back. They would have to decide in some aspect to return to the past to shore up their foundation so that they could move into the future. Columnist Cal Thomas once told a crowd that, quote, while it can be dangerous to live in the past, when something of value falls out of your vehicle, it's wise to stop, turn around, and pick it up before heading on. It is a metaphor for our age 
that has lost something from our past, but refuses to reverse direction and reclaim it, unquote. You know, rarely in history textbooks are we told of the central part that the good way of faith played in the life of those men that were most responsible for the founding of this nation, whose birth we rightly celebrate this day. Often we are told that their ranks were filled mostly with deists who did not believe in a God who was intimately associated with his creation. You know, sometimes we're told that their faith if they had any faith at all, was very shallow, merely a perfunctory part of their political life. Yet, there's, there's reason to believe from the writings of their own hands that that may not be true at all. Indeed, though, though burdened with the flaws of all fallen men whose ideals outpaced their practice, the men who were instrumental in the birth of this nation were largely men of integrity. Among them, many Christian men who took their faith very seriously and, in fact, sought to share it with others. Patrick Henry, who famously said, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Remember that guy? He also said, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see very similar statements often in so many of the Founding Fathers' writings. Not very pluralistic, but certainly to the point. And they backed up their words with actions. In fact, the American Tract Society, which is still in business today in Garland, Texas, was started by the founding fathers of this nation, as was the American Bible Society, as was the Philadelphia Bible Society, as was the Christian Constitutional Society, and so many other similar groups. Their leadership set a course for a young nation. Their example influenced education. The New England Primer was introduced to America in 1690 and for 200 years literally was the textbook of America's schools. If you went to school in the United States of America, then you learned to read from the New England Primer. It was to them what my first grade reader, I remember, was to me. They start off with the alphabet and show students how to make one or two and three letter syllables and how to put those syllables together to make words and sentences. Well, about a quarter of the way through the 90-page book, they come back to the alphabet and add a phrase to each letter, and the students memorized those phrases. Let me read to you just a few of those phrases which comprised the alphabet teaching of American schools for 200 years. A, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. B, better is a little with fear of the Lord than a treasure and trouble therewith. C, come unto Christ, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. D, do not the abominable thing which I hath said, saith the Lord, which I hate, saith the Lord. E, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, you may have noticed that those are all Bible verses. In the lessons were questions such as this, who was the first man? Who was the first woman? Who was the first murderer? Who was the first martyr? Who was the oldest man? Who built the ark? Who was the most faithful man? What is the fifth commandment? 
what was forbidden in the sixth commandment. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like a Sunday school lesson. All of the founding fathers went through this educational system. That's why years later, one of those men who went through this very system, John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States and a stalwart defender of democracy, not theocracy, wrote this. He said, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this, that it connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. He, in effect, said the biggest victory that we won was that the principles of Christianity and government would now be tied together, bound together, never to be separated. Or so he thought. John Jay, the first chief justice of the Supreme Court, wrote, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege in the interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Now, listen, I would take issue with his characterization of the United States being a Christian nation, uh, that it's, it was kind of a born-again nation. There's no such thing, really. Only people can be born again. But can you even believe that he wrote and believed that? It shows one thing, that there was a day that the leaders of this great nation once considered a relationship with the living God a prerequisite for public service. Character was king. Whether they were Christians or not, there was a moral understanding among those who led the nation in public office. And I think it served us well for a very, very long time. Their influence, of course, impacted our governing laws, too. Although living with their present constitution since 1958, France, in her history from around the time of the American Revolution, has changed her constitution about every 12 years. Between 1789 and 1858, France had 16 16 constitutions. Since the end of World War II, Italy has had 66 governments. That's an average of about one every 1.15 years. A little over a year. We've had a remarkably resilient and successful form of government here in the United States with a single constitution for 233 years. Where did the Founding Fathers get the idea that these ideas that have served us so well and so long? That was a question asked by professors at the University of Houston a few years back. They believed that if they could collect some of the writings of the Founding Fathers and see where they got their ideas from, then they would have an insight into the stability of the institutions which they founded. So... They collected 15,000 of their writings, then boiled those 15,000 down to a group of 3,154 writings that they felt had significant impact on the founding of America. They wanted to know who they quoted. They wanted to know who influenced them. The study took 10 years. They found that the three men most quoted were Blackstone, Montesquieu, and John Locke. But what they also found was something they did not expect. They found that four times more than they quoted Montesquieu, 12 times more than they quoted Blackstone, and 16 times more than they quoted John Locke, they quoted directly 
out of the Bible. 34% of all quotes of the Founding Fathers came out of the Bible. And on top of that, in another 60% of their quotes, they were quoting men who used the Bible to arrive at their conclusions. More than 9 out of 10 of the quotes of the Founding Fathers in the documents that they examined and in which they considered having significant impact on the founding of the United States were based on Scripture. But you know, the best laws in the world won't guarantee God's blessings on that nation. Government can't make you do what's right. John Adams said this. He said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. One can even see in early court decisions the high respect and honor this nation set on a a path by its founders once had for the Word of God and God's ways. For instance, in, in 1811, I was just fascinated by this court case. In 1811, a decision by the Supreme Court of the state of New York uh, in the People versus Ruggles stated that whatever strikes at the root of Christianity tends to destroy civil government. The case uh, that was brought before them dealt with a man by the name of John Ruggles, who on September 2nd, 1810, speaking in a very loud voice in a crowded tavern in Salem, New York, said, Jesus Christ was a bastard and his mother must be a whore. Well, Ruggles was immediately arrested. He was charged with blasphemy, and he was tried in Washington in June 11th, on June 11th, 1811. Ruggles was found guilty, and Justice Ambrose Spencer sentenced him to three months in prison and fined him $500. Well, the case was appealed, but the verdict was upheld unanimously on appeal. And in his opinion, Chief Justice James Kent wrote this. He said, The people of this state, in common with the people of this country, profess the general doctrines of Christianity as the rule of their faith and practice. And to scandalize the author of these doctrines is not only, in a religious point of view, extremely impious, but even in respect to the obligations due to society, is a gross violation of decency and good order. You should read his entire statement I did this week. Justice Kent was saying, in effect, that the problem with blasphemy is that it attacks Jesus Christ. And if you attack Jesus Christ, you've attacked Christianity. And if you attack Christianity, you have attacked the foundation of the United States. Therefore, they said, an attack on Jesus Christ is the equivalent of an attack on the underpinnings of the government of the United States. Can you imagine that? Did the actions of the fathers fall short in some notable ways from their ideals? Yeah, they absolutely did. But because people don't live up to their ideals, doesn't mean that their ideals are wrong. They left writings, they left documents, and, and hopes that any nation set on building a permanent earthly dwelling could build on it, could add to it. They set the course to be a better people. Martin Luther King Jr. called the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution a promissory note, aspects of which still needed to be cashed. Remember in that speech? Still needed to be grown into. Must, must be grown into. In our history, it took a great civil war 
where almost 700,000 people died to correct an evil whose abolition was spearheaded, as it was in England, by people of deep faith. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, here it is, we will not walk in it. I don't have time to show you point by point, uh, but over the years, the Bible was slowly expelled from public discourse in our country. Does it make a difference to stop ruling and educating by God's general principles? George Washington, the founder of our first president and and, uh, one of the founding fathers, said this. He said, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. He said, if you take away the principles of the word of God, you're going to lose national morality. And if you lose national morality, you'll begin to see things that you never thought possible. Was he right? America has always been a world leader and still is. By a large margin, we lead the world in violent crimes. We lead the world in teenage pregnancy, in illegal drug use, and in childhood poverty. We're number three in divorce. We're in the top 10 for obesity and the top quarter of nations in suicides and are number four in terms of homelessness with Los Angeles, California, and New York City ranking among the top four cities in the world with that unhappy honor, ranking only behind Manila in the Philippines and Mumbai, India. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. Israel was a hard-headed people. They would not hear the trumpet that was blown by the prophets of God. They would not heed the warnings. And because of this, Israel was defeated. What do we need to do to get back to the old paths in our lives, in our homes, in our churches, and in this nation, so that we can move forward? What can we do to assure that God's judgment doesn't fall on us as it did in Israel? How can we repair the foundations? What does the ancient path look like? Well, the first thing the ancient path looks like, it looks like a path of repentance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer used the phrase cheap grace to define how cynical the church had become towards God in his time. The world continually searches for a cheap covering for its sins. It has no real desire to be delivered from sin, it seems. In 2 Kings chapter 17, the writer said they worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. (laughs) Trying to do it both ways. We want God. We want what we want also. Yahweh, Jehovah, God, fine, bring him along. We love him too. But we also want to maintain our relationship with a number of things that we are attracted to in our culture. And can't we just, I mean, can't we just all get along? So we settle into an uneasy truce in our minds between the world and God's kingdom, when in reality, they are deadly enemies. Of this, we must repent. 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me, Jesus said. Are you ready to ask God to reveal the real sin in your life? And are you ready to ask God for a true heart, a true heart that is repentant? Are you ready to live a new normal? If you are, he is ready to hear and ready to receive you with open arms. It's a good path to build a strong foundation upon, this path of repentance. Second thing about the ancient paths, it's a path illuminated by the Word of God. We have never had so many Bibles and so much biblical illiteracy. Our values should be formed by the Word of God. Our values will come from someplace. We don't make them up. If they don't come from His Word, then I ask you, where do they come from? When we stay in the Word of God and read the Bible daily, all of a sudden, in those 101 forks in the road that we come upon, uh, we don't need to wonder about which course of action to take because our moral and ethical structure has been built. It's been established by truth. The path becomes clearer and much more obvious. It's a good path to build a strong foundation upon. What does the basic practice of reading the Bible do for you as a Christian? When we read the Word, we become familiar with it. We see the broader context and themes of God's Word. Passages that we read and reread become embedded in our memory. And, and, and when we know what the Bible has to say, we find it possible to apply the Bible with greater accuracy and impact, applying it to the daily problems and circumstances that we face every single day. And the Spirit of God begins to call to our remembrance what we have planted in our hearts and in our minds. The Word of God becomes a priority to us and becomes part of the way we think and part of the way we respond. Listen, what are the ancient paths? Well, they're a path of repentance and they're a path illuminated by the Word. But it's also a path of prayer. Another basic Christian practice is prayer. You'll not, uh, you will not be able to live an overcoming Christian life without prayer. You just can't. You'll never be able to defeat the devil without prayer. You'll never be able to win over temptation without prayer. See, the Bible tells the Christian to pray without ceasing. Now, that doesn't mean be on your knees, you know, 24-7, but all throughout the day in your conscious moments, it's talking to God about who you Talk to and what you see and what's coming into your mind and out of your mind and asking him, you know, for wisdom. Prayer is, is an essential element in the life of a believer. It is a good path to build a strong foundation upon. You know, I look in the Bible and I see that Jesus did nothing except that he first prayed. So how do you think we can get by without prayer? Prayer is the way you defeat the devil. You get the saved, lost. How? By prayer. You acquire wisdom. Uh, a backslider gets restored. The saints get strengthened. The sick are healed. And we accomplish the impossible. How? All through prayer, the Bible says. We need prayer. Let's get back to the basic path of prayer. If we do, it will shore up our foundations. Fourth thing. It's a path of fellowship, the ancient paths. Another basic, folks, is church attendance. When we attend church regularly, we build Christ-centered relationships. 
you know, the early church met physically on a daily basis. Why? To shoot the breeze about the weather? No. To encourage one another, to support one another, to be there for one another. We have to repent of the notion that we don't need each other. We need to repent of the way that we are at times so uncaring to one another, as a matter of fact. Oh, we have pastors who do stuff like that, you know. No. We need to be in fellowship with others. It's a good path to build a strong foundation upon. Well, I'm too busy to read. I'm too busy to pray. I'm too busy to meet. I, I don't need to repent of major things. But that is what the ancient path looks like. It's why the foundations have begun to crumble in our lives, in our families, and in this nation. But it's not enough to know. We must walk it. When we do, and only when we do, will we as individuals and as a nation find rest. Good paths build strong foundations upon which a good and a godly life can be built. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Good paths build strong foundations upon which a good and godly life can be built. It is the path Jesus laid out for his people. It is the path he himself followed for your redemption. It is the way to freedom. It is the way to shore up that which is broken. It is the new normal. And so, Father, on this July 4th, we thank you for the founding of our nation. We thank you for the men and women who spilled their blood, O oh God, over the years so that we may have freedom, that we may meet uh, and associate freely, O oh God. We thank you for them. We thank you for what they saw in their mind's eye. We thank you that the fact uh, uh, that they used Scripture and they, they knew the Bible, and, and many of them, so many of them, knew you, God, uh, resulted in, in what we have today. So we thank you for all of that. We really do. And yet we know we're imperfect. We are a very imperfect nation. God, we pray that we would move forward by moving back, maybe, and remembering what we have left behind. Pick it up to move forward into the future. It's the only way we're going to do it. We know that, God. So help us to have that mindset, that dedication, Lord, that desire to go back to the paths, the ancient paths that you have laid out for us so that we may move forward and be godly individuals and once again be a nation on, firm, on a firm foundation. Bless us now, O oh God, as we stumble ahead. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.